Hey everyone, in this installment of the Primate Cast, an origin story from Dr. Robin Dunbar on how the social brain evolved. Evolution. Communication. Cognition. Conservation. Behavior. Primatology. Primatology. Typically primates. Become the monkey. Hi, everyone, and once again, glad to have you back in the audience for this, the Primate Cast number 66, which is being released on Sunday, May the 22nd, 2022. I'm your host, Andrew McIntosh, from Kilty University's Wildlife Research Center, and today's podcast is taken from our International Primatology Lecture Series, Past, Present, and Future Perspectives of the Field. This is the brainchild of Dr. Michael Huffman, and like our normal programming, is brought to you by PSYCASP. The main goal of the lecture um, and this series is to share the origin stories of experienced practitioners in primatology and its allied fields. To do that, Mike Huffman has invited an, a revolving door of renowned primatologists to join us on the program and share their own stories with us. The Primate Cast is happy to be able to share these stories right here on the podcast, and we hope you enjoy them as much as we do. Now, unlike our normal interview format, these lectures are being done as part of the PSYCASP Seminar in Science Communication, which is aimed at graduate students here in the Primatology and Wildlife Science program at Kyoto University. So, what you'll hear is a lecture from each speaker that was recorded in Zoom, and who's generally also showing slides, so there may be some references to visual aids that are not available in podcast format. But for anyone wishing to see the speakers presenting their talks, we invite you to check out those on the SciCasp YouTube channel. In the fourth podcast from this IPL series, we hear from Dr. Robin Dunbar, Professor Emeritus of Evolutionary Psychology at the University of Oxford. He's behind some of the most iconic ideas in the evolution of social cognition, including the social brain hypothesis, which basically posits that most of what we think of as accounting for advanced intelligence in humans and other animals comes from this phenomenon of being social. And, what has, uh, and, and secondly, what has become known as Dunbar's number, um, which is a way to quantify the maximum effective number of individuals um, with which an individual can maintain stable social relationships. Based on our cognitive capabilities for tracking complex relationships among group members, and this has huge repercussions for group size and structure. So we hope that you enjoy this episode from our International Primatology Lecture Series, and we'll provide links in, to this and other lectures in our series in the show notes on the podcast website. As usual, here's Mike Huffman introducing Robin Dunbar to get us started. Okay, thanks, Andrew. And welcome all of you to the fourth um, lecture in the series. And it's, it's, it's a great pleasure and an honor that we have Professor Robin Dunbar um, talking to us today, for us today. Um, some of you may not, not be aware, although you're all more than um, likely aware of, of the immense body of work that, that Robin has done, but in, his, in the early days of his career back in 1979, he was actually um, here at, at PRI for several months working together with Professor Kawai and some of the researchers working with him in Ethiopia studying the gelato baboons. And Robin was doing his studies at about the same time. So Professor Kawai invited him over to, um, to spend some months with, with um, the team. And uh, several early papers came out of that work. But he was actually here on the fifth floor as a um, visiting scholar many, many years ago. I had heard about Robin's work for a long time before I actually met him. I think the first time we met was back in 1994 at Cambridge. There was a social learning conference and we had a, a party in the evening and Robin was sitting on the, in, in some of the, in, in, in an area, this big open hall, um, nursing a glass of wine as I was doing standing, walking around, um, introducing myself and meeting people. And Robin called me over and we set up a conversation and then, um, it was really a nice experience, and I think about that quite a bit. Um, um, I was checking through Amazon today, just, just looking for books and things, and I came across Robin's long list of, of books, and I was, I was amazed at the many different languages that his, his work has been translated into, Japanese, of course, and for most of those books, I think. So for you students who are interested in looking for a um, role model for science communication, I think Robin is, is, is the best example we have in the field for his very um, 
prolific activity and scientific outreach to the public and um, professionals at, at many different levels. And I think we'll, we'll get to hear a little bit about those experiences and how that has impacted the science that he does. Um, and so without any further ado, I'll let Robin do the rest of the talking, please. Thank, thank you very much, Mike. Uh, let me just kind of give a quick pointer to, to what I think are the, the main messages um, that are gonna come out of the talk. One is simply that discoveries in science are almost always accidents, they're never planned. Um, but, and particularly in our end, very few of them. In physics, they can make very fine predictions from theory and, and it works, but I'm afraid that uh, the level of field workers or indeed most of the life sciences, this doesn't really happen. So they are just accidents. It's about being there at the right time uh, and the right place um, uh, for when the light bulb goes on, if you like. Um, but I, I always feel with, with, for us field workers, really, just observation of the animals is absolutely crucial. If you don't, if you don't kind of intuitively understand what it's like to, to be that animal, no, no matter what animal you're studying, then you never really understand the world that it lives in. In other words, you have to be able to sit inside the animal's skull, if you like, and see the world around it the way the animal sees it, and then be able to ask, why is that the case? And in the context of these why questions, sometimes known as Tim Bergen's four whys, it's extremely important not to confuse causes with consequences and constraints, uh, particularly in evolutionary analysis. And people do that all the time, I'm afraid, particularly in comparative analyses. Um, there's a kind of oddity in the way I've gone about doing my research, I think, in that everybody, I guess, studies primates in order to understand humans, and I've always done the reverse. Uh, I, I've ended up doing a lot of things on humans, but it's actually in order to understand primates better, <laughs> because there are things that we can do on humans that we cannot uh, do on primates. And so the, the kind of slipping between uh, different species like this and also into other mammals um, uh, has been really quite important for the development of my ideas. And lastly, biology is a multidisciplinary discipline. It, it, it's, it you know, has many different layers to it and you need to examine the different layers all the time. So you know, clearly function, evolutionary function is the core to what most of us do, the why question if you like, but you also need to understand the mechanisms, I think, to see why, how these functions are brought about in the particular case, because in, in understanding the mechanisms, we understand the evolutionary process. So those are the key messages. Um, how did I get into this stuff? Well, I, I, looking back now, in my old age, as they say, um, it's become obvious to me, which I didn't appreciate at the time, that my early life really was very important in allowing me to do what I did for a number of reasons. One is I grew up in East Africa in this place called Tanga up here uh, uh, on the top right hand corner of mainland Tanzania, Tanganyika as it was then. Um, uh, and I was very early on exposed to wildlife. So here I am aged about three with a wild monkey sitting on our veranda. Um, the, we lived among these animals um, all the time and, and got to know them very well. Here I am in uh, age 17, I think, out in the bush um, uh, hunting. This is actually a, an 1890s uh, matchlock. <laughs> um, here's the powder horn. This is This is, uh, an extraordinary piece of equipment we found that these two guys had. Here's the powder horn. So this is a muzzle loading, push powder down the front end, then you stick a ball bearing down it and you've got a, a, a matchlock uh, uh, here um, uh, like they had in the early 19th centuries. It's an old Arab rifle, basically. Um, but we spent a lot of time walking around these kind of habitats, really understanding the nature of the habitat and how the animals lived in them. And also living up here in northern Tanzania is very close to um, Olduvai Gorge, the, the big area that uh, the Leakies really discovered in the early 60s, the, the uh, Australopithecines, the East African Australopithecines. So 
these these things were the talking point. People talked about these kind of discoveries all the time out there because they were there. So I, I was really very embedded into kind of human evolution stories, even in my childhood. And finally, um, I realize now growing up in, in what was an extremely multicultural uh, environment, um, was really very important because it allowed me to switch from one culture to another. I, I would consider myself a four culture person really because although I clearly grew up and my family was, was as it were, British uh, uh, culture, um, British were rather few in number out there. In fact, there were probably more other Europeans uh, in, in um, Tanganyika in particular than there were uh, British, but also there's a very large number of Indians. We're very heavily embedded in the Indian uh, community because my father grew up, was born and grew up in India. Um, there was a big Arab uh, 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 culture because being on the coast and the trading for, for many centuries or a thousand years probably. And then of course, Swahili culture. And, and I was deeply embedded in Swahili culture um, to the point where I wrote poetry in Swahili in Arabic script, which is what they used in the 18th century. And this down here on the right, lower right is one of my uh, Swahili poems. Um, I could no longer write now in Arabic script because it's about 50 years since I did it, but there we go. But these, these in kind of environmental influences at a very young age, I think allowed me to switch from being in one kind of cultural mindset to another. And that was very important in studying animals because it could easily move into their kind of mind state, if you like. So I, I started to study uh, primates in particular as an undergraduate. I, I did two field studies as an undergraduate, one of baboons in Ethiopia, 1968, and one of baboons in Senegal the following year, and then I did my PhD. I did my PhD on the, these animals here, the gelada, uh, with the um, Professor uh, Kawai's group coming through in between our two visits. We just sort of overlapped um, uh, um, up here in the um, neighboring uh, ridges, really, up in the Simeon Mountains in northern Ethiopia. So this is me here sitting in the middle of um, uh, uh, a gelada herd. But at the same time, uh, I also worked on uh, black and white colobus, um, not in this study site, but in another study site um, uh, where they were very abundant and we were working on uh, uh, gelada in, in, in a different area. Um, and also clip springer, which were extremely abundant up here. I first began to work on these. Later, I did a full-time full study of them in, in uh, Kenya. Uh, in the 1980s, but these little monogamous antelopes are, are really very fascinating and very enlightening uh, from that point of view, from understanding monogamy, I think, or, or obligatory monogamy in, in antelope. And then I spent a lot of time studying wild goats, feral goats in uh, Scotland and in, in North Wales, right through really from the 1980s on and off through till about 2007, when I finally stopped doing field work. But in the meantime, I'd been working increasingly on humans. So the story of the, the, the social brain, um, it's interesting that in 1992, give or take a year, uh, so I think the first paper was published in 1991 and the, the last of the series in 1993, but basically all the work was done around 1992. Um, I had four ideas, which I thought at the time were unrelated to each other. Um, they were the idea that time was more important than anything else for animals. And I spent a lot of time building time budget models, which we've gone on to do for, uh, I think we now have time budget models for 12 primate genera, all the great apes, uh, most of all the African uh, uh, genera of monkeys, um, uh, one South American uh, genus of monkey, and uh, feral goats, so one ungulate. Um, and these really look at the constraints that time imposes on um, the time that animals have available for social interaction, therefore creating their social groups. Um, at the same time, I started working on the social brain hypothesis. It came as an idle uh, thought, actually. Um, I, I was uh, trying to solve the problem of why 
primates spend so much time grooming, which I believed was a bonding mechanism, not just hygiene, although it obviously does clean the fur, but the real purpose was bonding. And I was trying to think of ways of testing that hypothesis and the Machiavellian intelligence hypothesis had recently been proposed. And I thought, well, um, if, if um, uh, grooming is, has main function is, is um, social bonding, then there ought to be a three-way correlation between grooming time, brain size, and social group size. And, and slightly to my surprise, there was, and there was this very tight relationship, relatively speaking, between group size and brain size. And that set me off thinking about the social brain hypothesis. This whole issue of grooming um, as a bonding mechanism, and particularly the uh, neuro um, uh, and neuropsychological mechanism or neurophysiological mechanisms that underpin grooming as a bonding mechanism that also gave rise to the gossip theory of language, if you like. And then finally, Dunbar's number, which, which spawned uh, um, perhaps uh, more ideas than anything else. So I think my, my um, most um, entertaining um, uh, consequence of Dunbar's number is there's there is a, a, um, a, a software, uh, an internet um, uh, um, silent handshake security mechanism known as Facebook, which was developed off the back of it. But there are also two bot detection mechanisms that are based on Dunbar's number and the fractal structuring of social relationships on the grounds that bots don't have natural social networks and only humans do. And those, those, those uh, um, uh, bot detection mechanisms are actually more successful at detecting bots than all the other mechanisms that uh, algorithms that have been developed. But anyway, roughly speaking, um, these various four, four different things have, have produced a huge number of papers really, but most of them are now collaborative papers with other people. Um, you can see the number, but that, what I came to realize in the end was that these four are actually four legs of the same story. They're the four legs on which social evolution really in, in primates in particular, but mammals in general, but primates in particular are based. Okay, so back to the social brain, what's it all about? Well, it seemed to me we have three things to explain here. One is why do primates have bigger brains than all other uh, animals and particularly other, other mammals? And is it really the case that primates uh, need a big brain um, to uh, find food? Are they ecologically smart, really smarter than squirrels, which are probably among the smartest of the, if you like, the lower mammals as we might uh, think of them. Secondly, why do primates have absolutely bigger brains, or why do some primate species have absolutely bigger brains than other primate species? So why do um, chimpanzees, for example, have bigger brains than monkeys? And why do monkeys have bigger brains than, let's say, uh, some of the prosimians? And then finally, why do we uh, find certain specialized areas in the primate brain, which we don't find in other species? And the two most important are probably <clears throat> this point here, what's known as the frontal pole, or Brodmann area 10, which is unique to anthropoid primates. The prosimians don't have it, and the calatricids don't have it either in the South American monkeys, but all the other anthropoid primates have this area. It's what allows them to do causal reasoning. It's what allows them to do analogical reasoning, one trial learning, and inhibition. It's what allows them to inhibit. And we've come to see inhibition as crucial for living in social groups, because you have to be able to inhibit your natural tendency to want to take the big slice of the cake. This is, this is if you like, um, the evolution of politeness in monkeys and apes and, of course, humans. So this capacity to allow somebody else to have some share of the benefits of living in the group without trying to steal all the benefits is crucial to keeping or allowing a group to keep together. And that's the problem they have. Uh, it's it's enabling the group to remain together as a single unit to provide the function that's necessary for the animals. And then the other key anatomical thing is this uh, so-called mentalizing network, uh, which is this huge chunk connected by a massive great white matter um, uh, uh, wiring, if you like, um, which involves the prefrontal cortex up here, including the frontal pole, um, the temporal parietal junction up in here and the, the temporal lobe here. And, and we've seen since 
come to realize that this is also deeply connected into what's known as the default mode ne network, which goes uh, from up here in the prefrontal cortex into the limbic system down behind here somewhere. Um, so you have this sort of hugely complex system. And that turns out to be fundamentally important for social reasoning, basically. Um, and monkeys, at least macaques, where the primate work has been done in humans, have exactly the same system. Okay, so here's the original analysis I did on the uh, social uh, brain hypothesis, plotting mean group size for a species against neocortex ratio, um, just putting a regression line, but this is not the conventional least squares regression line, which will run across here uh, at a much lower angle because of the scatter in the data, uh, but using a, a, um, a reduced major axis regression, which tends to put the line up the center of the tube of data, as it were, um, uh, is the one I used. And I had the idea, and this was probably something like three o'clock in the morning after a long night um, uh, analyzing this, to, to ask, well, what happens to humans? We have humans in this same database. We can plug them in. Oh, and, and by the way, I, we, we showed later that this quantitative relationship only applies to, to primates. It does not apply to mammals other mammals in general, and it doesn't apply to birds either, where, where the same principle applies, there's still a social brain hypothesis, but it's not a quantitative relationship between group size and neocortex ratio. It's simply a reflection of monogamous systems. In all these other species, monogamous uh, species have bigger brains than polygamous species, but that's the end of it, with the possible exception of uh, the dolphin uh, whale family. Um, but if we plug humans in, we get uh, a prediction off that of about 150. Um, that's the number that's become known as, as Dunbar's number. Does it exist? Well, the answer is yes, surprisingly. <laughs> I was a bit doubtful. I thought it was much too small a number for humans. But actually, um, we and other people have spent the last 30 years uh, testing this in many different contexts. Uh, and we come up with a value of 150 consistently over and over again. So here's one data set of ours. This is a national cell phone data set from one large country. So there are 6 million subscribers in here. It's based on 6 billion calls uh, over the course of a year. Um, we take reciprocated calls as indicative of a, a relationship. So you have to call back to the same number at some point, otherwise it doesn't count a relationship. And when you look at that, you get a nice bell-shaped curve. The, the sort of green uh, smear is all these 6 million subscribers uh, squashed in there, but the mean is right above uh, 150. And here's um, uh, an analysis of number of friends on Facebook by Stephen Wolfram, who's a kind of major analyst of, of online uh, and Facebook in particular data. This is his data, nothing to do with me. He did this long before, um, or at least completely independently of the social brain hypothesis and Dunbar's number. This is the distribution of the number of friends on Facebook for a million Facebook users. And the peak here, he said the, the modal value is between 150 and 250, which is uh, good enough for me, um, particularly as given the age group, because we now know that um, although the average is 150, the range is from about 100 to 250. And younger people who are the main Facebook users tend to be at the top end, so this is where you'd expect it to be. But I just discovered this paper was actually published 10 years ago, and I never noticed it. Um, but there's a very nice analysis. It was actually a, a very infamous experiment done on Facebook, which caused a lot of uh, uh, row and, and, and um, uh, attack uh, by people uh, because of the way they'd manipulated people's feeds. But buried in there is an estimate of the size, the mean size of uh, the number of friends on Facebook. And this sample is 61 million Facebook users. And the, uh, the, the mean is 149. Thank you, it doesn't come any better than that. I'm ha quite happy. But we also know now actually that, that 150 is an, what the mathematicians would call an attractor. Uh, it's a point where, if you like, the system is drawn to because of some feature of the system. And that feature is information flow. So we published a paper last year with some physicists 
showing that if you look at the structure of actual social networks in humans, the flow of information through the network is actually optimized at a size of 150. Uh, it, it sort of converges to that point. So um, I, 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 at this point here, at exactly 150, the system collapses um, and, and goes back to kind of random uh, processes as well. That's probably because the system fragments at that point and you no longer have an integrated uh, network or community. Um, but the fact that it, it does this suggests that there's either a cognitive limit or a time limit or both, and, and both is probably what the answer is. However, here we are living in social groups, uh, uh, along with all the other primates of a particular size. Uh, the problem for all mammals is that living in groups has costs, and those costs we usually think of in terms of day journey length and competition for food, these kind of things. Um, uh, but actually, it turns out that this is much less problematic for them. And we've literally only just discovered this. The paper showing it is, is not yet, uh, um, is still in the review process, um, is that living in groups destroys female fertility. Uh, and it seems to be a consequence of stress created amongst the females themselves, because the, the, there's a positive effect on fertility of group size which is why they live in groups. But there's a negative effect of the number of females in the group, which is the cost. And it, it is so strong in mammals in general that mammals cannot live in groups bigger than uh, five to seven females. It simply can't be done. That sets an upper limit on group size for mammals in general at about 15, which is exactly what you see, except in the herding species, which is one way of solving this problem. Primates, however, have uh, gone in a different direction, and that is using bonded coalitions to buffer themselves against these stresses, and so allow themselves to live in, in large bonded groups. But here are the kinds of stresses. Here are some of our gelada, one harem here, uh, squabbling with the harem, another harem over here. Uh, these are the uh, Kashima Japanese macaques. Um, and you can see here's the dominant male going off uh, towards this, this lady here, uh, because uh, um, uh, he knows very well that she has peanuts in her pocket. She always does uh, for them. But everybody else, look what they're doing. They're all watching him, and these ones are moving out of his way. They know what's going to happen. They don't want to be in, in the way. Um, so this is all these kind of small level uh, stressful things, sometimes big level stressful things, are just a constant problem that you have to cope with. And we can see this in, or the response to this really, in terms of bonded social groups. So this is an analysis that Suzanne Schultz did um, uh, some years ago, in which she looked at the rate of brain evolution over geological time since the first appearance of the order. So this is over, you know, 60 million years for primates, 20 million years for ruminants, uh, and so on. How fast did uh, brain size grow over time? Uh, and uh, what proportion of that order's living species um, have bonded social groups? And you can see there's a very tight, actually, linear correlation between these two. Anthropoids sit right at the top. Prosimians are way down. They're, they're, they're not in the same league as anthropoids. In fact, the camelids, um, um, the camels and alpacas and so on, uh, do better, as do the, the, the equid family, the horses, zebras, and the dolphins. Um, but some species, the um, uh, cats, the uh, ruminant uh, antelopes and deer, um, the dog family, um, don't have uh, bonded social groups in this kind of way. This is, this is how these species have solved the um, stresses of living in, in large groups, and the anthropoids have really come out right on the top. So what are they doing? How are they doing this? Um, it's become clear to me over the years that what's going on here is what psychologists would call a two-process mechanism. Um, uh, it should say a two-process mechanism but in there, but it's it's being cut off, I'm afraid. Um, uh, that the, the mechanism used in creating social bonds in primates uses two separate processes 
which have different neural pathways in the brain, but which support each other. So they work in tandem. One is this stuff here, social grooming or just physical touch stroking in, in the case of humans, but social grooming in the case of primates. And this creates an, an emotionally very intense basis or platform off which to build relationships. And it does that through the endorphin system in the brain. Um, and the second component is a cognitive component. It's given that they are able to spend a lot of time with each other, then they can build, uh, what they're doing in effect is building cognitive relationships of trust and obligation and, uh, and reciprocity. And I'll just go through each of those uh, very quickly. Uh, the endorphin system in the brain turns out to be really interesting and, and much more important in social context uh, than um, any of the other neurohormones that everybody gets excited about. Um, this is, this is a, a, I mean, we know from the primate research from other people that grooming and several different labs that grooming triggers the release of endorphins in the brain. So uh, along with my collaborators in Finland, Lauri Numenma uh, and his lab, we ran a bunch of humans through uh, um, PET scanning, which is pretty nasty stuff, and um, which we had uh, a partner of the person just lightly stroking the, the torso, the chest and, and stomach while, uh, while, while the person was in the, the scanner. And here are the brains lighting up, just going crazy absorbing endorphins that have been triggered by um, a light so stroking and, and this is done through a very specialized neural system the c-tactile neural system or, or more correctly the afferent c-tactile neural system because it has no return loop it differs from the usual pain type uh, peripheral nerves in that it's only one way there's there's no return loop motor loop back down to to the thing it responds to only one it's very slow because it's unmyelinated um, and uh, it responds only to one stimulus and one stimulus only and that's light slow stroking at exactly 2.5 centimeters per second and that's the speed of hand movements uh, uh, during grooming as, as the animal uh, pushes the fur aside to, to, to look uh, uh, at the skin surface beneath as it were. If you do it, if you stroke slower or faster than that, the neurons do not respond. And these, this, although this is a mammal-wide effect, um, it, it's really exploited heavily only by, by the, the primates and some other species, for example, the horses do a lot of grooming with each other. Um, the problem with grooming is it's kind of very limited in who you you can do it with. You can only groom one person at a time. So that really imposes a limit on the number of individuals you can groom with and therefore the size of group you can have. Uh, and we were interested in how humans really got above the limits that we see on group size in primates, which is around about 50, 50 animals. Uh, how, how do we get up to 150? And we estimate from the various equations, how much grooming time you would expect of all the fossil uh, humans here. Um, uh, these, these are not modern, modern, well, the blue line is what you'd expect to see in modern humans if we just bonded all our relationships by grooming, but, but the, these modern humans here are actually fossil modern humans. So it's taking the uh, brain sizes, calculating group size from that, and then calculating grooming time from that using the equations relating these, these variables. And you can see it's going up here, but we have this big gap because nobody, including humans, modern humans spends more than 20% of their day engaged in, in um, social interaction. And what we now think has happened is at various stages during this time, we've introduced new and more ways of uh, triggering the endorphin system. The oldest is laughter. It's something we share with, with great apes in particular. And it's very visceral, uh, so we, uh, it's involuntary. We, we can't stop laughing if everybody else laughs. It's kind of like a form of chorusing, a bit like howler monkey chorusing, polite, quiet howler monkey chorusing, singing without words, so humming if you like, uh, uh, and dancing. And then after the appearance of language, which, which is very late uh, in human evolution, we get the rituals of religion, feasting, together, eating and drinking of alcohol together, and storytelling. And we now know 
uh, because we've, uh, I just say, the, these three blocks we think come in to allow these uplifts at these three particular points. But we now know that all of these trigger the endorphin system and more importantly, they increase the bonding, sense of bonding to the people you do these activities with. They don't change your sense of bonding to the people who are not there. Even your best friend is a very specific uh, lead to the people you're actually engaged in this activity with. So these are the sort of uh, attempts by our ancestors, if you like, to increase the size of the group we live in or they lived in using the same basic neurobiological uh, mechanism, but having found out, if you like, and, and this is certainly historical, the, the, these are things we've learned. This is probably genetic, but these are all things we've learned uh, how to do. Um, that we've learned how to trigger the endorphin system with a lot of people simultaneously, which overcomes the constraints of physical grooming. Um, we've done an awful lot of work on uh, neuroimaging uh, in collaboration with various people, but since, in addition, so have other people from other labs. There's about a dozen neuroimaging studies now of individual humans, which has shown that the size of your personal social network correlates in particular with the size of the mentalizing network uh, in particular, but also in especially so the prefrontal cortex up here. Um, and there's Rodman's area uh, 10, the frontal pole up in here uh, uh, um, as part of that. Um, but we also now know uh, from other people's work that the, the default mode network is part of that system. So it's this huge complex. It's a massive, massive neural uh, um, uh, loop, as it were, um, connected by huge uh, fiber pathways. And it doesn't seems not to matter uh, how you measure the social network. So we've often used just the inner core of the network. Other people have used the uh, Facebook number of friends on Facebook. Um, I think the the um, uh, prize goes to uh, these guys, Quark et al, who who um, sampled a complete co Korean village, everybody in the village, and then um, for their social networks and use the incoming uh, um, uh, um, likes, if you like, uh, 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 to estimate the number of friends that somebody's had. So rather than asking you how many friends do you have, they ask how many people think you are a friend of theirs. And that's your friendship number. And then they scan the brains of um, a large proportion of these, these villagers and showed that, again, uh, this big loop here in the mentalizing network correlates with the number of friends you have. And Two, two labs have now done the same for macaques and baboons. So this is Jerem Saleh's uh, study of captive macaques. And, and this is uh, the French group that, that have looked at um, semi-free ranging baboons. So and essentially the same thing. Well, in their case, they looked at total brain volume. Um, the animals that live in, uh, lived in bigger groups within these captive colony uh, had uh, bigger brains. Uh, Jerome Saleh looked at the actual um, size of different brain units uh, and showed that uh, the size of individual social networks, if you like, correlate with the size of key um, brain regions, and particularly those that are associated again with the mentalizing circuit. So the other big part of the story, which has taken us a long, this, this has actually taken me 25 years to show that this is the case. I first realized the, the issue, if you like, in 1993, and I said so in print in 1993, we have only just published. In fact, the paper showing it uh, was finally in print today. <laughs> I got an email from, from, from the, the journal. But when anybody looks at the um, uh, social uh, brain data, uh, the, the group size to brain size, um, relationships in primates. They assume it's a single data set. Uh, but when you look at what, who's, what, uh, who these species are, it becomes very obvious that this is not so. And in fact, what we've now been able to show, and the problem with showing this statistically is the big problem, is that uh, this apparently single set of data really consists of four grades, four separate grades. There's a bunch of, 
uh, of relatively unsocial primates out here. There's a bunch of very social primates, which are mainly great apes out uh, here. And then in between are kind of two separate layers of um, increasingly intensely social primates. So this is, yeah, uh, what's interesting about these is these are not taxonomic. It cuts across taxonomy completely. Yes, these are prosimians, but these are South American monkeys. In these uh, grades here, you've got a complete scatter of prosimians, South American monkeys, uh, Afri old world monkeys, and, and occasionally the odd ape in some of the data sets. And, and mostly these are apes in, in this data set. Uh, and there's humans up, up here sitting on this, essentially sitting on this, this fourth most intensely social grade line. Now, the interesting thing is we've been able now, and um, this is Stefan's original data set, but we've got more data sets available now. So we've been able to do exactly the same analysis on altogether five different measures of brain size, if you like, uh, from uh, four different compilations of brain data in primates. Um, these are cranial volume data, uh, this is Navarette's recently published uh, neocortex volume data. This is non-visual uh, neocortex, so it's a sort of frontal end uh, uh, of primates from Stefan's database. And, and this is frontal lobe volume uh, from Rilling database. And all of these show the same patterns. And I, what I kind of want to draw your attention to is how tightly these um, uh, values sit around these grades. They're, they really aren't scattered. Um, but these grades differ in brain size, in group size, and differ significantly in this respect, in bondedness, the proportion of bonded uh, uh, um, species with bonded social systems, in measures of social cognition, and the two we use are mentalizing and, and inhibition, and finally in habitat pr predator risk. So what seems to be happening is as primates are invading more and more predator risky habitats, they're being pushed along this dimension here to develop bigger groups, uh, but in order to develop bigger groups, they're having to develop the kind of behavioral and cognitive mechanisms that allow them to hold those groups together so they don't become dispersed. Um, and that is why you get this relationship between group size and brain size. Um, and this frack, uh, well, kind of emerging out of this really was, and, and I guess we first showed this in humans. We hadn't kind of anticipated it at all, but it just came out of the looking at human social networks. But all primates have a fractal structure to their social groups. And by fractal structure, I mean a picture that looks a bit like this. You've got all the individuals here and they gather together in different grouping levels uh, with the grouping levels themselves gathering into higher grouping levels. So you've got several individuals here, let's say that form a coalition, they groom a lot together, they protect each other, they help each other out if you like. And then several coalitions make up a reproductive unit, a harem, several harems make up a team, several teams make up a band and several bands make up a community. And this was first published in one of our very early papers with uh, Kawai Sensai, um, as a result of that visit I made to um, um, PRI back in 1979. Okay, so uh, uh, when we look at the pattern of these um, grouping levels in different species of primates against these grades, it's very clear that these grouping levels, the, the sizes of these different units lie on these grades, not on uh, not scattered amongst them. So here are data, for example, for Hamadryas and Gelada, which are well known to have this kind of hierarchically structured fractal setup. Um, they, these, the, the values of these sit on or very close to specific grades. Um, uh, these are data for chimpanzees, which we now, now have turn out, and gorillas, which also turn out to have this kind of structure. And here are the data for humans over here. And then these are some Gwenans, African Gwenans and Colobines from Africa and, and uh, Asia, which if you look at species which uh, live in large groups and small groups, related species, then they turn out to sit on these grades. So if I can um, uh, identify uh, the right set, I think this is uh, Colobus monkeys 
um, you know, this is colob colobus monkeys in Africa, which live in small groups. And here are procolobus monkeys, which live in large groups in more predator risky, poorer quality habitats. And it looks like they're what's happening here is to create these larger groups. They're simply holding subgroups together from the standard type create so rather than a group fissioning and half the group disappearing the group stays together and that causes them then to sit on these these grade lines so these grade lines act as attractors and it turns out there's another fifth layer down here um, so these are grooming these are grooming uh, coalitions in these species um, what are called neighborhoods female neighborhoods in in ch the chimpanzee research uh, humans, this is um, uh, uh, the size of your kind of basal social social grouping. So only certain group sizes are possible, but as you go up through the layers, so the bonding gets weaker and weaker and weaker and uh, less and less stable, which is why up here, the Hamadryas and Gelada can form these flexible um, uh, herds, as it were. And, and that seems to be the point, is that this fractal structure allows great flexibility without losing social cohesion. And it turns out, if you look at the size distributions for primates as a whole, so this is the average mean species group size for every species of primates, then these turn out to have this fractal, fractal structure as well. This is not, these are not normal distributions. They turn out to be um, a number of overlapping, partially overlapping Poisson distributions, so skewed distributions, but with very strong peaks. And these peaks occur at around 5, 15, and particularly 50. In the anthropoids, there appears to be a grouping somewhere in the middle at about 30. And the same is true of the prosimians, just sit down here at the bottom. Um, they, they have peaks at uh, two and a half, uh, uh, around about five and about 15 again. And that turns out to be the structure of your social network. So this is from our work on human uh, social networks. What we find is, is this kind of structure. You sit in the center of a series of expanding circles. The smallest one around you has about one and a half people in it. That's because some people have two intimate friends. Some people only have one. So the average turns out to be about one and a half. Uh, uh, it, it, there's a, a, a circle of, uh, whoops, uh, um, very close friends about, or friends and family, remember, about five people, uh, about 15 uh, good friend, best friends, about 50 good friends, 150 friends. So here's Dunbar's number. Uh, and this, this circle really defines the limits of altruism, it turns out, and emotional bonding. And then beyond that, we know there's a circle of 500, uh, which we call acquaintances. And then beyond that, we know there are two more layers in humans, one at 1,500, one at uh, 5,000. Um, but these layers are very, very consistent. You see them in all data sets, and they're driven primarily by how much time you devote to them. So these are the average rates of contact per, per day for each individual in each of these circles. And you can see this, this inner core uh, uh, of five best friends and family here. You, you see contact much more often. In fact, you devote 40% of your social time, social effort, and your emotional capital as well to these five people, and then another 20% to the 10 people. These, these numbers are cumulative, by the way. The 15 includes the five, it's not an extra 15. Um, you devote another 20% of your time to the extra 10 people in this circle here. So that 60% of your social effort is devoted to just 15 people, and the quantity declines as you go out. But those frequencies turn out in humans to be crucial for keeping these layers together. If you don't see somebody at the specific uh, frequency of contact required for this, this layer, let's say, they will drift down very quickly within a matter of months into the layer below. So these are very, very time costly relationships. We've shown these layers exist in Facebook data. It's a very old Facebook, publicly available Facebook data. So it, it's from the, about 2009, I think. So just after Facebook started, people didn't have their sort of full networks on there. But you can see if you look at the postings in there, you get this layered structure. These, these are Twitter data. So these are conversations going on within Twitter accounts between the followers. Uh, these are cell phone data, national cell phone data. 
um, uh, uh, from an entire country. It's again, very large samples. These are our estimates from face-to-face -face interactions. That's asking people to list all their friends. And here, exactly the same numbers reappear in modern armies. This is the structure of modern armies here that you're looking at. And lo and behold, here are fractal group sizes in the structure of primate social groups. They just sit on these lines. There's something weird and odd about these numbers that makes them very, very stable. And therefore, group sizes tend to cluster around them rather than kind of being completely random. So, okay, just, just to sum up very quickly, most of these ideas were really discovered by asking why animals behave the way they do. And just keep on asking why, 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 like a child does. And not making any real theoretical assumptions. In fact, I, sometimes theory gets in the way and distracts us. I think we have to be able to look at what the animals are doing in themselves. Uh, as I said at the beginning, using humans to study things we can't easily do in animals. Understanding the differences between primates, um, among the primates and between primates and other mammals was very, a very important thing. Uh, a lot of it has been possible only by collaboration. So collaboration with physicists on the network structure stuff, we've, uh, it's been hugely, hugely profitable. And with neurosciences for the brain imaging stuff, which I couldn't have done myself. And without these collaborations and these contributions, the story would have been much shorter uh, and much more boring. And last but not least, we have to be very, very careful how we ask and statistically test our questions. And most of the kind of attempts to disprove a lot of this stuff has simply been a consequence of people testing their, thinking they're testing one hypothesis, but actually testing the reverse hypothesis, which is, you know, a completely different question. Um, uh, 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 and, and it's because people haven't been paying attention to the structure of biological arguments and explanations is, is really the root of the problem. Okay. And this is my new book, just come out. It's, it summarizes all the human stuff, um, but of course there's some primate stuff buried in there. So it's just written for the layman, but it has lots of reference in it. So thank you very much, everybody. Um, I hope I haven't talked for too long, um, but I'm happy to answer questions. You've been listening to The Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to all things primatology and wildlife science, to the conservation of species, and to the sharing of scientific knowledge. The podcast is hosted and produced by Andrew McIntosh, with artwork from Chris Martin and music from Andre Gonzalez. It is brought to you by the Center for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology at Kyoto University's Center for the Evolutionary Origins of Human Behavior. Visit us online at theprimatecast.com and follow our social media feeds on Facebook and Twitter at The Primate Cast. Drop us a line anytime to say hello, to tell us what you think about the show, and to suggest future guests for the podcast.